Greetings, everybody. We'll begin with a word of prayer here. Father in heaven, we never cease to be amazed at how much we can learn from the word that you have provided for us. We are so thankful that you have preserved it for us, that you give us instruction, you give us guidance, you give us reassurance. We thank you for presenting your word in such a way that it does require some study, it does require some discerning, but it is so worth the effort. We thank you for revealing yourself to us, for making us a part of your family. We ask that you would guide us as we study your word and look into the book of Acts this evening. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight we're going to be looking at Acts part 2. Jesus Christ, the living Lord. He was crucified in the Gospels, but he rose from the dead. And the book of Acts chronicles the work that he did through the Holy Spirit in the early church. The first thing that I wanted to talk about is the epistles of Paul as they relate to the book of Acts. I showed you this uh, chart last time giving us the place of Acts in history. So 30 to 35 was Pentecost and the formation of the early church. 35 through 47 was the expansion of the church into Judea and Samaria. Forty-four was the year in which James, the brother of John, the Apostle John, was martyred. And then 47 through 48 was Paul's first missionary trip. Years 49 through 52 were Paul's second missionary trip. 52 through 57 were Paul's, was Paul's third missionary trip. 60 through 62 is Paul's imprisonment in Rome. And then 66 through 67, Paul's second imprisonment. This is something that's not covered in the book of Acts. His second imprisonment and martyrdom. And that was the same time that Peter was martyred. I showed you these charts last time, but this time I want to coordinate these charts with another chart that I will show you giving us the timeline of the epistles, the epistles of Paul. I'm not talking about all epistles, but just the epistles of Paul. The order in which you see the epistles in your New Testament, in your Bible, is not chronological. It's not the order in which they were written. In other words, as you read the New Testament, you might think that Romans, since it is the first of Paul's epistles to appear in the New Testament, was the first written. No, it wasn't the first written. In your New Testament, the epistles of Paul are arranged from longest to shortest. So that's why Romans is listed first, because it's the longest of Paul's epistles. And that's why Philemon is last, because it's the shortest of Paul's epistles. So they're arranged in, in your Bible from longest to shortest. They're not chronological. They're not uh, arranged in the order in which they were written. So this chart uh, shows you 
the order in which they were written. Uh, you'll notice that the book of Galatians appears twice on this chart. That's because there's some debate about when Galatians was written. Uh, most of Paul's epistles were addressed to Christians in particular cities, Romans, Ephesians, Philippians. But Galatia is not a city. Galatia is a region. Paul visited southern Galatia on his first missionary journey, but he didn't visit northern Galatia until the, his third missionary journey. So there's some debate about whether Paul wrote Galatians after his first journey to Galatia in, in the southern part, or whether he wrote it after his second visit to Galatia in the northern part. I happen to be one of those who think that he wrote the book of Galatians after his visit to the southern part. So I think that Galatia, Galatians was probably the first epistle that Paul wrote. But anyway, this is a listing of the epistles of Paul in the order in which they were written. Most of the epistles of Paul were written during the events described in the, in the book of Acts. But the last three of his epistles, is the epistle to his first letter to Timothy, his letter to Titus, and then his letter to second, his second letter to, to Timothy. Those were all written after the events described in the book of Acts. Those relate to his second imprisonment, which is not described in the book of Acts. The second imprisonment that resulted in his martyrdom. And the last epistle that he wrote, second Timothy, uh, was written while he was in prison in his second imprisonment, just before his execution. So this next part, I'm going to give you when Paul wrote each of these epistles in relation to the book of Acts. So we'll start out with his first missionary journey. And then in Acts 15, chapter 15, verses 30 through 35, we, we see Paul and Barnabas returning to Antioch after the first missionary journey. That's when he wrote the book of Galatians. And you might want to just jot these down and, and place them in the, in the margins of your Bible in the, in the book of Acts. It's, just, it's interesting to see when, when these epistles were written in relation to the events of the book of Acts. So that was something that happened in his first missionary journey. The second missionary journey, uh, while he was ministering in Corinth, in chapter 18, verses 1 through 18, uh, that's when he would have written the book of 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. He was, uh, as the Bible says, he was, he was some while in Corinth, so he was there quite a while, and that's when he wrote the book of the books of 1 and 2 Thessalonians. Now on to his third missionary journey. In chapter 19, verses 8 through 22, he's teaching the disciples in Ephesus. And it's at that time that he writes the book of 1 Corinthians, the first letter to the Christians in Corinth. And then there is a riot in Ephesus, and that's in chapter 19, verses 23 through uh, chapter 20, verse, verse 1. And that's when he would have written 2 Corinthians while he was still there in, in Ephesus. 
and we're still on his third missionary journey. He spent three months in Greece, the book of Acts tells us, in chapter 20, verses 2 through 32. He spent three months in Greece, and that was the, the time when he wrote the book of Romans. So if you just go by the order that you have in your New Testament, you might think that Romans was the first epistle written. But, but see here, Romans wasn't written until Paul was well into his third missionary journey. And then we go on to Paul's arrest and imprisonment. He was arrested in Israel, but he was taken to, to Rome ultimately and placed under house arrest there. In chapter 28, verses 16, 31, 16 through 31, we read about his house arrest in Rome. And he had lots of time to write, of course, while he was in prison. So that's when he wrote the epistles to the Ephesians, to the Colossians, to Philemon, and to the Philippians. And then at that point, the book of Acts ends. That's the end of the book of Acts. And then, as I mentioned earlier, there were three other epistles that he wrote after his first imprisonment. He wrote the, the first epistle to Timothy. Then he wrote the epistle to Titus. And then finally, during his second imprisonment, he wrote his last epistle, the epistle to the second epistle to Timothy. So that is the the epistles of Paul in relation to the history of the book of Acts. Now you might say, well, what difference does it make? Well, whether we understand uh, the order in which the epistles were written. What's the big deal? Well, it does matter in the sense that it will affect how you understand certain events that are described in the New Testament. I'll give you an example. Uh, I once heard a sermon in which the speaker referred to Demas, who was at one time one of the companions of the Apostle Paul on his missionary journeys. And he pointed to 2 Timothy 4.10 where it says, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world and has departed for Thessalonica. And then he said, but we know that Demas eventually repented and came back to Paul because we read in Philemon, verses 23 and 24, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, and my fellow laborers. So he concluded from that, that Demas at one time left Paul, but he later repented and came back. Now, the only reason you would think that, the only reason you would come to that conclusion is if you think the epistles in our New Testament are in the order in which they were written, but that is not the case. So if we, once we discover that Philemon was written about AD 60, this scripture about Demas being a, a companion of Paul, a fellow laborer with Paul, that comes before the statement about Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world and has departed for Thessalonica. That was written in about 67 AD. So as far as we know from scripture, Demas never did repent and come back to Paul. So your understanding about Demas your conclusion about Demas is going to be greatly affected by your understanding of when the epistles were written. 
So that's just an example of, of why it's important to understand the order of the epistles, the chronological order in which they were written. Now, for the rest of our study this evening, I want to talk about various uh, examples of uh, what are alleged to be discrepancies or contradictions. I, I really enjoy studying into these things because they give us an opportunity to see how the Bible really is God's word. It really is valid. It really is inspired. And anything that appears to be a contradiction or a discrepancy really isn't once we look into it. So the first one I want to refer to is in Acts chapter 2, verses 16 through 21, where Peter is quoting from the prophet Joel, chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. In Acts 2, Pentecost arrives, and the disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit. In response to criticism, Peter says that what they hear and see was spoken by the prophet Joel. Yet in the passage Peter quotes, there are events mentioned that did not happen at Pentecost, like the moon turning to blood. Did Peter err, Peter err in, in quoting Joel? Did he make a mistake? Peter was simply showing that Pentecost involved a partial or initial fulfillment of Joel 2, 28 through 32. This partial fulfillment was in regard to the indwelling Holy Spirit for believers. And this is exactly what happened on the day of Pentecost. In Joel, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. I will pour out my spirit in those days. And God did pour forth his spirit on the day of Pentecost. Peter's reference was to indicate that the last days had been inaugurated, that they had been put into motion. The wonders of the sky above and the signs on the earth beneath are to take place later on in earth history, at the time of Christ's second coming. Notice that these things will happen before the great and notable day of the Lord, which is yet future. We can read about that in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. So the fact that Peter referred to Joel doesn't mean that he was saying that all of Joel 2 was to be fulfilled in his day at that time. The next thing that we'll take a look at is the question of, is baptism necessary for salvation? Acts 2.38. Uh, when I see uh, Acts 2.38, I have to chuckle because there's a little, a little story associated with that. Uh, a burglar breaks into a, you know, the home of an elderly woman and the woman shouts, uh, repent, Acts 2.38. And the, the burglar is just cowering in fear. And so the woman calls the police and they come and arrest the man and, and ask him, well, why were you so afraid of this elderly woman? And the burglar said, well, she said she had an ax and 238s. That's why I get a chuckle out of Acts 2.38. Peter seems to be saying that those who responded to his message had to repent and be baptized before they could receive the Holy Spirit. 
But this is contrary to the teaching of Paul, that baptism is not part of the gospel. And you can read about that in 1 Corinthians 1.17. And that we are saved by faith alone, Romans 4.4, 4, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. So was, was Peter really teaching that you had to be baptized before you could receive the Holy Spirit? This is resolved when we consider the possible meaning of being baptized for the remission of sins in light of its usage, the whole context, and the rest of Scripture. The word for, ace in the Greek, can mean with a view to or even because of. In this case, water baptism would be because they had been saved, not in order to be saved. People are saved by receiving God's word, and Peter's audience gladly received his word before they were baptized. Verse 44 speaks of all who believed as constituting the early church, not all who were baptized. Later, those who believed Peter's message clearly received the Holy Spirit before they were baptized. This is when Peter visited the home of of uh, Cornelius and his household and took the gospel to the Gentiles. And it's very clear from that passage that they believed they received the Holy Spirit before they were baptized. Peter said, can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So they had believed, they had received the Holy Spirit and then they were baptized. Paul separates baptism from the gospel, saying, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. It is the gospel that saves us. Therefore, baptism is not part of what saves us. Not once in the entire gospel of John, written explicitly so that people can believe and be saved, does it give baptism as a part of the condition of salvation. It simply says over and over again that people should believe and be saved. Some examples of that are John 3, 16, 18, and 36. In view of all these factors, it seems best to understand Peter's statement like this. Repent and be baptized with a view to the forgiveness of sins. That this view look backward to their sins being forgiven after they were saved is made clear by the context and by the rest of Scripture. Believing or repenting and being baptized are placed together, since baptism should follow belief. But nowhere does it say, he who is not baptized will be condemned. Yet Jesus said emphatically, he who does not believe is condemned already. So neither Peter nor the rest of Scripture makes baptism a condition of salvation. Is Jesus the only way of salvation? This isn't really a contradiction, but it's just something that, that comes up very often in our pluralistic society. The idea that there is no other way of salvation than through Jesus is, is seen as just too over the top, too radical, too extreme, too intolerant. Peter declares there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved 
but isn't this a narrow exclusivism? What about the sincere pagan or Buddhist? Is God going to send them to hell? Sincerity is not a good test of truth. Many people can and have been sincerely wrong about many things. All truth is exclusive. The truth that two plus three equals five is very exclusive too. It does not allow for any other conclusion. The same is true of value statements such as racism is wrong or people should not be cruel. These views do not tolerate any alternatives. All truth claims are exclusive. For example, if humanism is true, then all non-humanisms are false. If atheism is true, then all who believe in God are wrong. Every truth claim excludes its opposite. Hence, if Jesus is the only way to God, then there is no other way. This is no more exclusive than any other truth claim. The question, of course, is whether the claim is true. That's the question. We can't just reject it because it, it's so exclusive. Jesus and the New Testament clearly and repeatedly emphasize that Jesus is the only way of salvation. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus also claimed he was the door, insisting that he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, the same is a thief and a robber. The apostle added, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's what Peter said here in Acts. And Paul contended, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. Now we will turn to Acts chapter 7. And as I probably mentioned last time, last week, this is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible in, in terms of its apologetic value. Because there are several, several alleged discrepancies in this Acts chapter 7. This is where uh, Stephen, the first martyr, is giving his speech, his sermon, just prior to his martyrdom. And he's retelling the story of Israel, of God's dealings with Israel. And at several points in his telling of the story, there seem to be contradictions between what he says and what the Old Testament says. So let's, let's take a look at several of these. This, this is what Stephen said in Acts chapter 7, verse 4. Then he, Abraham, left the country of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After his father died, and that's crucial, after his father died, God had him move from there to this country, meaning to the land of Israel, in which you are now living. Notice that this happened after his father died. In Genesis 12, where we're reading about this, it says, so Abram went, and as the Lord had told him, and Lot went out with, went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. 
So after his father died, he was 75 years old. In Genesis 11:26, Jesus is talking about Terah, the father of Abraham. When Terah had lived 70 years, he became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. So according to this, the way that this appears to read on, on the face of it, Terah was 70 years old when Abraham was born. Genesis 11.32 says, The days of Terah, the father of Abraham, were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. But wait a minute. If Abraham was born when Terah was 70 years old, and Terah lived 205 years, that means that Abraham was 135 years old. But didn't Stephen say that he was 75 years old? So how can this be? Is he 75 years old or is he 30, 135 years old? Well, the explanation of this is really quite simple. When a man has two or three sons and the sons are named in a particular order, that doesn't necessarily mean that the first one named is the oldest. What it means is that the first one named is the most important to the story. Most of the time when Moses and Aaron are mentioned together, Moses is listed first before Aaron. This is an example, Exodus 4.29, then Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the Israelites. But Moses wasn't the older of the two, was he? Aaron was his older brother. But Moses is mentioned first because he is the most important to the story. The same thing with the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So from that verse alone, you might conclude, well, of, of the three, son, three sons, Shem was the oldest. But as you read the entire story uh, in, in Genesis about Noah and the flood and his sons, you learn that Shem was not the oldest of the sons. He's, the, he's mentioned first because he's most important to the story because it was through him, of course, that we have, uh, we have Abraham and we have Moses and we have David and ultimately we have Jesus the Messiah through the line of Shem. So Shem is most important to the narrative, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he's the oldest. And it's the same thing with Abraham or Abraham. Even though he's mentioned first, listed first, that doesn't mean he was the oldest. So, what happened was when Terah was 130 years old, not 75 years old, not 70 years old, um, when, when Terah was 130 years old, Abraham was born. Terah lived 205 years old, so Abraham would have been 75 at the time. So, Abraham is not the oldest of the three sons. He's just something mentioned first because he's most important to the story.
next issue that we want to take up is the issue of 400 years or 430 years. Quoting from Stephen in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 7, And God spoke to this effect, that his, Abraham's offspring, would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. Even in the Old Testament itself, we see differing numbers. In Genesis 15, then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But when we turn to the book of Exodus and we read about Israel coming out of Egypt, now the sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelt in Egypt was 430 years. And at the end of 430 years to the very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. So, if you just read this verse alone in Exodus 12, you will, will conclude that Israel was in bondage in Egypt for 430 years. But is that really what it says? It tells us that Israel came out of Egypt at the end of 430 years, but it doesn't really tell us what event marked the beginning of the 430 years. And the fact is that Israel was not in bondage in Egypt for the entire 430 years. One of the basic principles of Bible study is uh, put in, in Isaiah 28, Verse 10, our precept must be upon precept, line upon line, here a little and there a little. And the meaning of that is that on any given subject, especially on an important subject, you can't just read one verse or one passage of scripture and say, there, oh, I got it. I know, I know what the Bible says about that subject. Because you really don't unless you take into consideration all of the scriptures, all the verses and the passages that relate to that point. So before you jump to any conclusions, you need to understand the whole counsel of God on that issue. One of the things that is crucial to our understanding of 400 years or 430 years is given to us in the New Testament, in the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say and to seeds as though referring to many, but referring to one and to your seed who is Christ. And I say this, the law, which came 430 years later, does not revoke a covenant that was previously ratified by God and cancel the promise. So, this passage from the book of Galatians tells us that it was 430 years from the time that the promises were made to Abraham to the time that Israel came out of Egypt and was given the law. So, here, here's the dilemma that we face. If it's 430 years from the time that the promises were made to Abraham 
to the Exodus and the giving of the law, if that's 430 years, how can we fit a 430 year oppression in Egypt into that? Because the oppression in Egypt is 430 years, and then there's an extra time, so 430 years plus, how do you fit 430 years plus into 430 years? Well, here, here's a, a helpful diagram. I, I believe I included this also in the, in the handout of how all of this works. So it's 430 years from the time that the promises were made to Abraham to the, to the Exodus and the giving of the law, as we read in both Exodus chapter 12 and also in Galatians 3. And then, so what happens during that time period? Well, from the time that the promises are made to Abraham, there's a 30 year period until Isaac is born. In Genesis 21 and Genesis 15. And then I, when Isaac was 60 years old, that's when Jacob was born, Genesis 25. And then from the time that Jacob was born until the time that he went down into Egypt, that was 130 years. So we read about that in Genesis 47, that he was 130 years old. Pharaoh wanted to know how old Joseph's dad was, and he was told that he was 130 years old. So we have 30 years from the time the promises were made to Abraham to Isaac is born, and then from the time that Isaac is born to the time that Jacob is born, is 60 years from the time that Jacob was born until the time that he went, he went into Egypt, is 130 years. So that leaves 210 years as the time that Israel was actually in Egypt. So they weren't in, e in Egypt the entire 430 years, they were only in Egypt 210 years. The uh, Septuagint, the Greek translation of the, of the Hebrew scriptures, uh, attempts to clarify, clarify that a little bit for us. It says, now the sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelt in Canaan and Egypt was 430 years. The next one that we come to is 75 people or 70 people. Quoting Stephen again in the book of Acts, then Joseph sent and invited his father, Jacob, and all his relatives to come to him, 75 in all. But when we go back to the book of Genesis in the Old Testament, and we read the account, it says, the children of Israel, the children of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two. It was Ephraim and Manasseh. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. So which is it, 75 or 70? Well, the answer to this is that we're really comparing apples and oranges. Because in the, the Hebrew Masoretic text that we have, it does say 70. But Stephen is quoting from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the, of the scriptures which says 75. And we're really comparing apples and oranges in here, here because we're, we're, we're comparing two groups of people that aren't calculated in the same way. So this, this chart will help you understand what's going on here. 
in the Hebrew text, which arrives at 70 people, is counting Jacob and his wife. They're counted in the total of 70. In the Greek text, in the Septuagint, those two are not counted. Then Jacob's 12 sons, Jacob's 54 grandsons and great-grandsons, and then Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, those are counted. But then we get down to Joseph's additional descendants in Egypt. These are descendants of his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. In the Hebrew text, these are not counted. In the Septuagint, they are counted. So that is how we arrive at two different numbers. 70 in the Hebrew text, 75 in the Septuagint. There, there are two slightly different groups. The, the groups are, are counted up, added up in different ways. So that's why one place says 70, one place says 75. Next, the next issue is Abraham or Jacob. Stephen again. So Jacob went down to Egypt. He himself died there as well as our ancestors, and their bodies were brought back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. When we go back to Joshua, book of Joshua, chapter 24, it says, the bones of Joseph, which the Israelites had brought up from Egypt, were buried at Shechem in the portion of ground that Jacob had bought from the children of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for 100 pieces of money. So who bought this land, Abraham or Jacob? Well, when we look at the lives of Abraham and his son Isaac and his grandson Jacob, we find that they lived a nomadic life. They wandered around a lot. And one of the principles that you're familiar with that has been in action uh, for centuries is the idea of possession is, you heard the saying, possession is nine-tenths of the law. And so what would happen is that Abraham or that Abraham would would acquire a piece of land, but then in his travels and his wanderings, he would leave that piece of land. And the people who lived around there would say, well, he's not here, so let's take it. And so what would happen is that Jacob, his son, or Isaac, his son, and, or Jacob, his grandson, would have to repurchase that same piece of land because Abraham had departed from that land and the locals had taken it over. So let's look at a couple of examples of that. Uh, one of, of Abraham and his son Isaac, and one of Abraham and his son Jacob. In comparing these two passages in Genesis 21 and Genesis 26, Abraham purchased the land, he negotiated with the locals, made an agreement. But then his, his uh, son Isaac had to repurchase the land, renegotiate with the locals, make another agreement. And the same thing happened with uh, Abraham and his grandson Jacob. When we compare Genesis 12 and Genesis 33, Abraham acquired the land, built an altar, 
But then later on, Jacob had to repurchase the land and rebuild the altar. So let's take a look at some of these passages. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech. And the two men made a covenant. Abraham set apart seven new lambs of the flock. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven new lambs that you have set apart? He said, these seven new lambs you shall accept from my hand in order that you may be a witness for me that I dug this well. So Abraham took possession of this land, he dug a well. But later on, with his son Isaac, they said, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. He's talking about Isaac. So we say, let there be an oath between you and us and let us make a covenant with you so that you will do to us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have not done nothing, to you nothing but good, and have sent you away in peace. So you are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths, and Isaac set them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. So even though Abraham had earlier made a covenant, made an agreement, Isaac had to, to go through the whole rigmarole again. Here's, here's the second example. Abraham passed, at that time, Abram, passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. But in Genesis 33, we read, Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for 100 pieces of money the plot of land on which he had pitched his tent. Therefore, he erected an altar and called it El Elohim Israel. So, Abraham had previously acquired this land, had previously built an altar on it, but Jacob had to do it all again. So there's no contradiction in saying that the land was purchased by Abraham or it was purchased by Jacob. They both purchased it. The next uh, example I have is, I call it Rifon or Kaiwan, which is it? Stephen again. You took along the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Riphan, the images that you made to worship. He's, he's quoting a passage from Amos. But when we go back and read the passage from Amos, Amos 5, 26, it says, you shall take up Sakut, your king, and Kaiwan, your star god, your images which you made for yourselves. Now, you will see that this is a matter of alphabets. It really is a matter of alphabets. It's, it's, just, it's just that simple. Now you see in, in blue, I have in Stephen the tent and uh, in the Amos passage, Sakut, the name of, of a god. One of the things about ancient Hebrew, biblical Hebrew is that it is only consonants. There are no vowels. So depending on how you point the vowels, 
they can be either. The name, a proper name, the name of a god, Sakut, or the word for tent or for a shrine. Uh, you might see the similarity between uh, uh, Sakut, the, the name of this god, and Sukkot, if we're familiar with the, the festivals, meaning a, a tent, a temporary dwelling. And the same thing with king. Uh, it could be well pointed as Moloch, or it could be point, well pointed as Melech, which means king. So that's the understanding of, of how it could be seen either way as Moloch or king. So when the, one, once again, remember that that Stephen is quoting from the Septuagint. And by the time of the, that the Septuagint was written, the translators of the Septuagint may have, have understood the vowel pointing with, the, with these words differently. So that's why we come up with Tent and Moloch and we come up with Sakut and King in another. But now what about Raifan and Kaiwan? Well, as I mentioned, this is a matter of alphabets and the changes that occur within alphabets. Many of you, when you were in high school probably, read the Canterbury Tales. But when you read the Canterbury Tales in, in English class or English literature class, you read the Canterbury Tales put into a modern alphabet. If you actually went back and read the Canterbury Tales as they were written in the 14th century, I believe it was, you couldn't read it because the English alphabet has changed that much from the 14th century to today. It's very different. Well, the Hebrew language, the Hebrew alphabet has also gone through changes over the centuries. This is just a, a chart showing the, the letters of the Hebrew alphabet and how they've changed. If you start with the, the first letter, Allah, up in the upper left hand there, it, it started, Hebrew started out as a pictographic language. See the, the, the letter Aleph was, was an ox's head. And then there was another later phase and then there was the letters that we know as Hebrew letters today. That was an alphabet that was adopted by the Jewish people when the, after the Babylonian captivity. But that, that middle column there, that, that is called Paleo-Hebrew. That is the Hebrew alphabet that existed well from the time of Moses through a up clear up till the Israelites were taken into captivity. So once again, we see some pictures here. There are several intermediate phases that the that Paleo Hebrew went through. And I don't, I don't expect you to know all of these or learn all of these, but this is just to show you that Hebrew has changed over the centuries, the Hebrew alphabet. There is an island called Elephantine Island. It's in the Nile, Nile River in Egypt. And there was a colony of Jewish people who lived here around the, the fourth century, that fourth, fourth century BC. And 
because of the, the dry climate of Egypt, archaeologists discovered many papyri. They're called the Elephantine papyri. And they were very well preserved because of the dry climate of Egypt. So we can see what Hebrew writing, Hebrew alphabet looked like at that time. And it's also interesting because the Septuagint, the Greek, the, the translation from the Hebrew to the Greek Old Testament also took place in Egypt. And this is just a, a picture of, of one of the elephantine papyri. So here, here's the deal. The Hebrew letter that represents the K sound, Kaf, looks something like this. The Hebrew letter that represents the R sound, Resh, looks something like this. Now, if you see these two letters side by side, you can see some subtle differences between them. The, uh, that top line on the Kaf is more curved than it is on the Resh. But if you saw just one of these letters, it would be very easy to mistake one for the other. To, to mistake cough for race or race for cough. And the same thing is true with the letter for Vav, the W or V sound. It looks something like this. The letter for Pay, which is either the, sometimes it's the P sound, sometimes it's the PH sound, the F sound. It looks something like this. Once again, if you see the two letters side by side, you can see some subtle differences. The, uh, the tail on the pay is a little straighter, whereas it's a little more curved on the vav. But once again, if you saw either of those letters, just one of the letters, it would be very easy to mistake one for the other. So here we see Rayfan Rifon and Kaiwan. They look awfully similar, don't they? So uh, keep in mind now that we're reading from right to left. So we have like K Y W N, and that's the the Kaiwan, and then. R Y P N, Rifon. They're very similar in the Hebrew writing at that time. So now we have the, those four letters and we put in some vowels. Get Kaiwan or Rifon. But you can see how easily it is to, to get from one to the other. Now in English, they don't seem anything alike, but you can see how they, the similarities in with the Hebrew letters. So that explains why we in Amos we have Kaiwan and in Acts we have Rifon. So what seems like a contradiction isn't really a contradiction. It's just a symbol of change, a uh, simple matter of changes in the Hebrew alphabet over time. So now let's move on to some of the other alleged discrepancies in, in Acts. 
This is a, a, an alleged discrepancy between Acts 9-7 and Acts 22-9. According to 9-7, and the men which journeyed with him, this is talking about Paul's experience on the road to Damascus, and the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. But Acts 22.9 declares, those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. This appears to be an outright contradiction. One In one passage saying they heard the voice and another saying they did not hear the voice. The contradiction is only verbal, not real. The word hear, akuo in Greek, and incidentally, you, you see in that Greek word akuo, the word from which we get our English word acoustic. The word hear can have different meanings in Greek, just as it does in English. It can mean hear a voice, or it can mean understand the meaning of what was said. Thus, the NIV correctly translates the two passages. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Notice that it calls it a sound, not a voice. Acts 22.9, my companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. This resolves the apparent contradiction. A number of considerations support these translations. The same word here, akuo, can mean two different things. It can mean a hear a voice without understanding the words. It can also mean hear a voice with understanding of the words. It can also mean to hear in the sense of obey. It's used in that way in, in Matthew 17.5. So the word hear, akuo, can, can have some different meanings. The word voice, phone, and you recognize in that Greek word, the uh, source from which we get our English word telephone or phone. The word voice, phone, is used in a different form in Acts 19.17, phones, the genitive form of the word, from that in 22.9, phonein, the accusative form of the word. This may signal a different sense of the word in each context. Since the basic significance of the genitive is to stress quality, its use here may indicate but even though they heard the voice, its quality was such that they did not understand it. So they, they heard the voice in the sense that they heard a noise, a sound, but they couldn't make out what it was. This would reconcile it with Acts 22.9, which says they did not hear or understand the voice. Voice, phone, is sometimes translated sound or noise that is not in intelligible words. There's some, some examples from the book of Revelation of that. There is a, a voice, but it's, to the hearers, it's just a sound. They don't recognize it as a voice. There is another, another example in scripture of the same voice of God being heard only by some audibly, but also understood by others. The voice of God spoke from heaven. This is in John, Chapter 12, verse 28, the voice of God spoke from heaven about glorifying the Father's name, declaring, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. When this happened, some heard only the noise, 
but did not understand the meaning, affirming that it had merely thundered, so it just sounded like thunder to them, but others heard the message. So that, this is a, a clear example of where God spoke to some, the words were intelligible, to others it was just a sound. Another example of an alleged contradiction in the book of Acts uh, has to do with circumcision. Was Paul for circumcision or was he against circumcision? Paul's main point in Galatians can be summarized in his words. If you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. Yet Paul admits that he had Timothy circumcised. Read about this in Acts chapter 16. Paul admits that he had Timothy circumcised because of the Jews who were in that region. Well, didn't this contradict his own teaching? I mean, if he was so opposed to circumcision, why did he have Timothy circumcised? Paul's action in having Timothy circumcised is not inconsistent with what he taught in Galatians, since the two cases are very different. Paul was strongly opposed to any who made circumcision necessary for salvation but he never opposed it as helpful for evangelism. Indeed, Paul said elsewhere, to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. 1 Corinthians 9.20 However, when Judaizers insisted, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That was the issue in, at the uh, summit, at the meeting in Acts 15. Paul took a stand against circumcision. The problem was not circumcision per se, but making circumcision a prerequisite for salvation. So the act of circumcision itself was not wrong, but it was wrong to make that action, that work, a prerequisite for salvation. And the, the last one here, Acts 23.5. Didn't Paul know the high priest? The high priest Ananias commanded that Paul be struck on the mouth. Paul rebuked him for doing so. And those who stood by condemned Paul for reviling the high priest. Paul responded by claiming, I did not know that he was the high priest. But this is highly unlikely since Paul himself had been a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin and worked closely with him before his conversion. So what did Paul mean when he said, I did not know he was the high priest? There are several views taken on this passage. Some suggest that Paul may, have not, may not have known the high priest personally, even though he was previously a member of the Jewish council. So that's one view, that Paul didn't know him personally. Others claim that Paul may have had poor vision. Perhaps this was his thorn in the flesh, the poor vision. And he was not able to see him clearly. Still others believe that Paul could have been lying to get himself out of a bad situation. Apostles sin too. We read about that in Galatians where Peter did something that wasn't right. And in this case, Acts is simply giving us a true record of Paul's sin. So that's another view. It seems more plausible, however, to take Paul's statement as sarcastic, but not false. 
in this case, his statement, I did not know that he was the high priest, could be translated something like this. This is the high priest of God's law. I would never have known it by his unlawful command to strike me. So it is quite possible that Paul was being sarcastic here. You know, saying that, you know, this guy's the high priest. He sure would know it by the way he's acting. So that explains how Paul could say, I did not know he was the high priest. So that is our, our study for this evening. And uh, I hope you learned a few things uh, about the book of Acts. It's always amazing to me how much there is to learn in God's word once we once we dig into it. And we can never say, well, I've studied God's word. I'm done with that. I've been there, done that. No, there's always more to learn, isn't there? Let's close with a word of prayer, and then we'll go on to our uh, discussion, questions, and comments. Father in heaven, we thank you for the miraculous, supernatural way that you have preserved your word for us. And we just are never cease to, to be amazed at, at what you have done for us, at the guidance that you have provided for us, the instruction, the, insur the assurance, and all that you have done for us. We thank you for your word, and we thank you most of all that you have given us knowledge and understanding of our need for your son and what he has done for us. We pray in his name, Jesus Christ. Amen.